So, Sarah, tell me, well, tell me your name and and your title and uh, a little bit about what you do. Hey, I'm Sarah Lefton, and I founded and am now the creative director of Bim Bomb. We used to be called Godcast. We're an organization in Oakland, California, that animates the Hebrew Bible and also does Judaism 101 explainers for adults that are curious about holidays, rituals, things like that. And we do an animated series for kids called Shaboom. And how did you get started in that line of work? It's a pretty specialized thing yes. to do. <laughs> I was working in advertising and online marketing for a long time. And on the side was doing a lot of Jewish education, just personally. As somebody who felt like I had a lot to catch up on, having grown up with a mediocre education. At one point, the two just came together. And I felt frustrated that there weren't great, catchy, cool things that young people would want to use on the internet to learn about Judaism. So I started creating them with friends in my living room. And the thing took off and has been around now for 10 years. We're a nonprofit and we're a staff of six. Cool. And what was the like first thing that you made? The thing that I wanted to make first was an animated um, guide through Talmud. But I was told that was too complicated and that I was in over my head. And thank you to the person who said that. Because <laughs> what that caused us to do was go into, oh, let's tell Bible stories. So Judaism has a tradition of reading a portion each week called the Parsha HaShavua, the portion of the week. And so I started with Parshat Balak, the story of Balak and Balaam, um, because it seemed fun. There was going to be a talking donkey in it. That seemed like something fun to animate. I went over to my friend Andy's house. He's a rabbi, as well as my friend, and said, talk to me about the Parsha for three or four minutes. Um, I recorded it in his living room, edited it, and then my friend Nick animated it. And I made that episode and started showing it at Jewish conferences and to friends in the business world. And eventually someone introduced me to a philanthropist who said, this is ridiculous that this doesn't exist. How much do you need? Hmm. And our nonprofit was born. Cool. Cool. How did you sort of put it together? So you knew an animator and you knew a rabbi, but presumably it took more than those two connections to sort of make this happen from a, from the production side. So like, yeah, what, I started so. from a place of knowing it had to be animation, hmm. but although I was a huge fan of animation myself, I first had to find an animator and that happened to me by accident. I met someone who was an animator and immediately said, Hey, do you think this project is interesting? And he said, I definitely think it's interesting. I need you to pay me. <laughs> <laughs> so that was like a classic startup story of, I took, you know, 500 bucks and, he was like, fine, and we made this piece together with all kind of cribbed together software. Like, I figured out that there was a thing called Audacity that was free audio software. I learned how to use it. I mean, I do have a technology background, so, but Audacity is not rocket science. You know, I teach it to people every day. So we recorded this thing. I somehow on the fly figured out that it should be three minutes. Nick started having fun with it. I sat in, although I'm not a rabbi, I am deeply busy in Jewish learning all the time and have as it turns out, good sensibilities for visual midrash, that act of taking text and making additional meaning on top of it that helps people understand stories. And so there were things in Nick's artwork that I was able to say, ooh, that's really cool what you did there. Could we see more of that? Or, oh, this might be seen as offensive to some people um, that you made an ugly angel. You know, mm. could you make the angel less unattractive? And mm. there's a real push and pull between the two of us that way that is actually really interesting. And it turns out to be one of the reasons I'm interested in makerism meets text because it causes you to see things in text 
that you wouldn't see otherwise when you're figuring out how to make it visual. Hmm. We started out recording things on inexpensive home equipment like a Zoom mic, a laptop, you know, nothing fancy. And it was only after the entire first year of those Parsha Hashivua videos, so 54 of them, that I started moving into recording studios and that we had enough money to actually go to the professionals to, to record and mix our audio. And we started adding music in the background that we commissioned from musicians. We learned a ton about copyright law. Mm. You know, there was a whole journey of learning about just not just the mechanics, but the, the legal and what to pay people and what kind of contracts and all kinds of stuff like that. We've taken the artists very seriously all along. Mm-hmm. Who watches a Bim Pom video? Right. So it's a really diverse crowd, and we basically cut them up into three categories. There are educators in the religion world, and it's not just Jews, by the way. So there are educators who we know are showing them in religious school settings and day school settings. There are people who are showing them at home with families or on their own. They're going to our website, they're getting our newsletter, and those people tend to be, I can tell you from our demographics, um, between 25 and 40-ish. Um, sometimes I think of that as a you know young adult audience. Sometimes I think of that as a parent audience. Depends on what the content you're looking at is, obviously. And the third group is really interesting to us of late. And these are folks who are stumbling upon our stuff through searches. One of the search terms that commonly brings people to our content is Shiva. And there's a really funny side story there about how we started wondering, how come we're getting so much traffic from Southeast Asia? Hmm. And we realized that Shiva is Shiva. (laughs) (laughs) So we had to actually adjust our Google AdWords to say, you know, minus India Hmm. (laughs) on our Hmm. searches. But so a common search term is Shiva. Now, Shiva is the six days of accompanying a mourner in their home right after a funeral. Um, And there are a lot of customs in a Shiva home, such as you might see people sitting on the floor, you might see mirrors covered, people bring food, there are certain prayers said, and, you know, there's there's a high bar perceived to cross to go to a Shiva home, which is why our videos are so successful, because people who are Jewish or not Jewish can watch it and in four minutes say, oh, I get it, I feel confident, I am relaxed and I can go to this Shiva now. So that's a big audience we serve is just the people out there searching and and, um, and we're creating content to service certain search terms at this point. <laughs> what I think I hear you saying is that we are, are, are seeing big shifts in the patterns of, of religious education and, and religious practice over generations and and your organization has found a, a niche in helping to provide sort of on the spot education to fill this sort of niche in social change. That's a really good phrase, and I'm going to use it. All right. So that's about you connecting with, with the people who who use your stuff. I'm putting on partly my own uh, religious authority figure hat for a second and wondering, what do they make of this content? Do they find this as useful? Do they find this as contributing to a culture where people don't need to have religious education because they can go watch a YouTube video? Do you encounter those kinds of attitudes? So we've done a fair bit of studying this, and to date, no one seems to view this as a threat at all. I think on the one hand, we're providing information to people who would not otherwise be getting it because they are not affiliated with an institution, right? Most kids are not getting any kind of, whether full day or supplemental religious education. So there's content going out to people who would not otherwise get it. And then for the children or adults who are getting it, Again, I think about this as 
extra time that this is five minutes out of two hours of screen time that's happening in that person's life that's being dedicated to something Jewish. And there's nothing but positive about that. Most Jewish educators who are familiar with us see it as a great boon to their classroom. In fact, because there is so much curriculum packed into a year of religious school that has to talk about life cycles and holidays and Israel and the Holocaust and history and there's so little time left actually for basic text learning that this is a huge gift to be able to quickly, easily turn on a four-minute piece about the Parsha Hashavua and maybe if that teacher has time to use it as a trigger for more discussion and to bring out the text and to have students look at it and highlight the lines. You know, we have curriculum attached to those pieces, but um, I think everyone sees it as a positive. We're not trying to stream services or provide counseling on our website. I'm not saying those are necessarily bad things, but we're not doing that. We're doing straight education rather than trying to be rabbis. Got it. Got it. So I'm wondering about you're part of a tradition that that has a whole range from worship entirely in Hebrew to worship mostly in English with some Hebrew. What has it been like trying to navigate issues around language in in your videos and and how does how does that work? Right. So our videos are entirely in English and every now and then we drop a little bit of Hebrew because it feels important to share the word, in which case we always define it and we put it up on the screen. So you'll see the Hebrew word and then it usually kind of does a cute little animation where it flips around and you see the English. I have a list of kind of narrator FAQs that I give to people who work with us, writers and narrators, and one of them is no unnecessary Hebrew. Mm. So just because it makes you feel cool to drop Hebrew and Yiddish and yeshivish slang into things, that is a real disconnect for a huge piece of our audience. So that's a warning that, you know, People get right away when they work with us. I'd like to shove that in the face of some uh, regular preachers in my tradition. <laughs> uh, that uh, no unnecessary Greek, please, or, or Hebrew. <laughs> yeah, um... yes, yeah, so that's a that's a hard and fast rule. Um, but sometimes it is super important. Um, and right now, in fact, we're working on a series about tefillah, prayer, and there we feel like it is really important to show the Hebrew, translate the Hebrew you know, put up transliterations to help people who are learning and, and to provide all of that. But I don't think it would be fair to any student of Judaism to show them, for instance, a psalm and not show it to them in the original Hebrew, even if they can't read it, just to show like this word, you know, baruch, yvarech, like that it shows up throughout the passage. And that means something that you're not going to get in the English because it's going to get translated differently. And mm. it's important to show it. Yeah. I saw recently some content you had in development around prayer, and I think it was Psalm 145. Mm -hmm. And um, we were talking about this the other day. I, I watched the video and was answering some survey questions about it. And my first thought in, in watching it was, this isn't as funny <laughs> as what I'm used to seeing yeah. uh, from Bim Bomb. Does it feel like you're broadening the tone of the media you create? And, and if so, um, what's it been like navigating that? Yeah, it's a, it's a touchy question in the office right now. Our brand values involve joy and being quirky and being refreshing. We have all these words and, um, and our logo is very perky and fun. And the voice of Bim Bomb has been very much my voice, like serious, but with a little funny to it. So you're right. The prayer stuff is serious. And there's something else we're working on, which is history. That's very serious and often very dark. And I don't know. That's why we're, we're moving slowly with it. The death stuff is also very serious. Um, and I think 
we're figuring out the medium, right? I think there's going to be something around naming playlists and putting like content with other like content. Mm. But as we grow, I think we have to we have to offer more types of content. And if we stay shallow and light all of the time, mm. then we're seeding our space to somebody else who's going to come in and be serious. Mm-hmm. I don't think that any particular slice of the content world, oof, that's a terrible term, but like any particular slice of content isn't really well served to be chopped up into tons and tons of different brands. I think competition is a great thing, but it we have a real distribution and um, discovery problem online where when you have 57 different YouTube channels that are all doing basic Jewish education, it becomes hard to know as an audience member what's good, what's vetted, what's the authority here. Mm-hmm. So I think it's important to us to since we are trusted mm-hmm. and we are accurate and we are fun and accessible mm-hmm. that we keep doing what we're doing just start to go a little deeper yeah my last job in the christian world was being one of those vetters one of the people who took in a lot of content and tried to make some curatorial decisions mm-hmm. on what to recommend to the people who trusted our um our center and i know that i relied in part, not just on the sort of raw content, but on the transparency of these organizations to sort of put their values out there. Um, It was always really helpful for me to hear them articulating how they went about their business. Mm. How do you think you communicate that? How do you, how do you communicate credibility when animating a Torah portion? We have always partnered with rabbis and Jewish educators to not only write entirely or help us write pieces, but to also vet each other's work. So nothing is ever written by one person and then thrown out there. It's always bounced off of other folks in the field and names are listed in the credits and things like that. But it's not enough and we every now and then do get caught with a complaint. Like, well, you didn't get this wrong, but it would have been more inclusive had you said this or what you're saying might be technically true but it's alienating to an interfaith family that might be watching the video so because of comments like that that have come in from time to time we're experimenting with a new model it's called a this is a terrible name but it's the rabbis writers lab and we're bringing together a multi-denominational groups of rabbis we're going to be doing this in chicago for instance in october there's gonna be 10 rabbis around a table and each one of them is going to write a piece after we train them how to how to work in the bim bomb style and then they're going to vet each other's work and there are a couple of orthodox rabbis reform rabbis people who work specifically on interfaith outreach so they're going to vet each other's work and make sure you know this person is going to say oh i need this to be a little more precise and this person's going to say i need this to feel more welcoming mm-hmm. and we're going to we're going to get it right that way hmm. interesting so you talked before about how you have a multi-denomination a multi-religious audience already for your videos and i know that's true because that's how we got to meet i uh used to be a a curator of religious education media uh, for an episcopal church seminary and found that lots of folks were really resonating with um, you were then called godcast with godcast's content and we had a sort of party line that godcast content was great and some of it would work really well in a Christian setting and some of it obviously wouldn't, you know, so we tried to help people think about some questions for how to um, decide when to, uh, when to use it. What's it like 
knowing that that Christians and others are watching this and are obviously not your primary audience, but but that's that's sort of there in the background. And I can just imagine that being kind of overwhelming to try to think about. Yeah. <laughs> how, how, do you, how do you navigate that? Look, I don't have much background in Christianity, but it's always excited me, like a lot. I, I've heard from people over the years who have said things like, your videos are so helpful to us Christians in understanding how Jews think about hmm. what we call the Old Testament, you know, hmm. and and that's so exciting to me. I don't, again, I don't know a lot about this, but just the idea that Christians have their way of reading the Hebrew Bible and that it might be interesting to them to hear what our way is. Hmm. I'm so thrilled that we can be a part of that. Hmm. I think we're doing a pretty good representation of what that looks like. Hmm. I would love to go deeper, right? Our videos are what, in the Jewish tradition, people would call pshat, like the simple meaning of the text. We don't mm. go into a lot of deep mysteries hidden in the text, or this mm. commentator said this commentator said this about the text. We don't do a lot of that, mm -hmm. because that's hard to do in four minutes. And that's a big part of what Judaism has to teach the world. But just the thought that you can learn about us through mm -hmm. media is pretty exciting. Mm -hmm. I'm also inspired to do something together mm. with folks in the Christian world more and more, um, and beyond the Christian world for that matter, to take a story that a group of people share. You know, just this week in the Christian world, I discovered that everyone is reading from Genesis, the Binding of Isaac story, and I found this out because the internet was full of it yeah. <laughs> as I was preparing for this conference that we're both at. Yeah. And I think that's just a perfect example, right? It's a very resonant story for Jews and Christians and Muslims. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. what would it look like to do a piece together mm -hmm. where we somehow say, look, this is what we all share in common. Mm -hmm. Here's a moment that Christianity pulls out that Judaism mm -hmm. doesn't. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know much at all about what Islam pulls out of the mm -hmm. story yet, but I want mm -hmm. to know. Yeah. And I would love to sit, yeah. you know, me and you yeah. and a Muslim person, TBD, mm -hmm. and yeah. make a three-way look at the story. I yeah. think it would be so exciting. Yeah, absolutely. And, and really break down some walls in the way we think about each other's attitude toward the text. Yeah, yeah. And you talked about you talked about interfaith families. I work at a church on the Upper West Side of New York City, and we have a lot of interfaith families, as you might imagine, a lot of in particular Christian Jewish families. And I have found that just that awareness of audience, for instance, when I'm in the pulpit, changes how I tend to approach a text. And if I'm preaching from the Hebrew Bible, I'm much more likely to want to hear from how Jews are interpreting this text versus from how Christians are interpreting this text because I know that there are families in the pews that are, are doing their best and it's inspiring to hear how they navigate it to, you know, navigate multiple religious belonging. And I think one of the things that I can do to help that is to have some sort of clarity about not to the extent that this is possible, not sort of crossing streams of interpretation. <laughs> um, I had an early draft of my Binding of Isaac sermon that, and this is quite unusual for me, um, went in a sort of Christian direction toward the end, and it just didn't feel right. Um, hmm. And that's partly because of how I think Christians ought to read what we call the Old Testament, and 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 partly because of the of the setting that I was preaching in. I don't have a question here, but I'm going to leave this yeah. because I just think it's really rich to think about audience and identity 
and meaning. And the visual adds this whole other element to it. Like, mm. if you're going to animate that story, which we've done twice, there's so many choices you could make that will subtly or obviously speak mm. to those crowds. Like, I could imagine, you know, drawing the bundle of wood that Isaac is carrying in 17 different ways mm. that would mean something very different to different audiences. Mm. And there's something we could do in a video we made together where we play that up. Huh. Right? Yeah. It could be really cool. You've got a sort of multimodal text that you're explicitly articulating the design decisions about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can almost imagine a choose-your-own-adventure. Yeah, I, or I can imagine our voices talking over it, where I would mm. say, hey, Kyle, you drew that wood to look like a cross. What's up, man? And then you, know, and then you would say, well, yeah, you know, yeah. we, we know that this story yeah. you know, is, a, is a typology, and I would yeah. say, no, we don't. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it'd be fun to not, not necessarily, uh, um, certainly not, trying to sort of win an argument, but in in the best of any religious tradition, trying to argue our way into a deeper understanding of something. Mm-hmm. Um, and I could see how you might see it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think that's really important. I think um, our inability to say, I see how you can see it that way, <laughs> strikes me as a greater and greater liability for many aspects of, of, of our common life. Absolutely. Yeah. In the, in the space that I spend most of my time thinking about the intersection between media and spirituality, there, there's a safe zone that includes using media to communicate as an organization or uh, using media as an educational, you know, pedagogical tool in the classroom. And then there's this line that one sort of crosses at their peril which is the notion that media might, uh, or new media at least, might directly be a part of one's prayer experience, even a part of one's corporate prayer experience. That tends, with the kinds of people I serve, to get everyone feeling a lot more nervous. <laughs> What's your experience with that been? Have, are you are you thinking about those questions? Yeah, it's it's limited. You know, I know about things going on out there, right? Like live streamed services for people who, you know, are homebound or disinclined to leave home. I know about, for instance, call-in minions for people who need to say Kaddish. Mm. Say more about what that is. Kaddish is the prayer you say um, when somebody has died. Mm-hmm. Like for a parent, you would say it daily for mm-hmm. a year. Um, and then you would say it on the anniversary mm-hmm. of a close death. And a minion is the... Is a group, group of 10 people required for prayer. So because you have to say Kaddish with a minion, traditionally, people will schlep to synagogue at 7 in the morning where there's a morning minion every day to accommodate this very thing. I mean, that's one reason people go to morning minion. But <laughs> a lot of people who are not otherwise observant Jews will suddenly start going to morning minion when they have to say Kaddish. So... I know, for instance, that there are call-in or internet cottage rooms where people do that together. I think that there are people, there are rabbinic figures who will permit this and who don't permit this, and that's a fun debate for them to have. There are other things like that. I know about Skype meditation situations that are going on. There's certainly an amount of chanting going on on YouTube. It's not live, though. I Mm. think there's something about prayer that wants to be live it Mm. seems so antithetical to me to be spiritual with others in an asynchronous way that seems Mm. like something Mm -hmm. i can't 
wrap my head around. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But the li- the live networked media are interesting in that way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've seen things where, you know, there's like a Twitter put your note in the Kotel in the Western Wall mm. um, oh, via sure. Twitter, things yeah. like that. There are, you know, 24-7 webcams pointed at holy spaces. Uh-huh. Um, Do you want to talk about the scapegoat? Oh, yeah. So the e-scapegoat is this really fun project we did in 2014. It is an adaptation of the story in Leviticus where Aaron took two goats and placed the sins of the community on the head of the goat and sacrificed one uh, and then took the other one out and tradition says push it off a cliff to die and take the sins with it. That's an amazing story and I'm sorry that we're not still doing it in real life, but I do like goats. So we made a virtual goat. So you would come to our website and watch a really cute 30 second animation about the story from Leviticus. And after you had learned the tale, you could then enter a tweet length sin and lay it virtually on the goat and then send it off into the wilderness. And on, actually, era of Yom Kippur, the night before Yom Kippur, when all of this atonement is completed for the year, we virtually sent the goat off of a cliff and sent everyone out in the community who had submitted sins an email that showed the goat flailing off of the cliff and wishing them a happy new year. (laughs) And in the meantime, our escape goat... uh, Twitter bot was repeating all of these sins out anonymously into the Twitter sphere where they were very much amplified, enjoyed, and cried over. Taken very seriously, actually, there were a number of rabbis who read them from their pulpits that year on Yom Kippur and said, you know, this is really interesting. These are the things that people in this community are sharing, and these are anonymous, real things that are happening, and people should know. So, in fact, we built on the project the second year to allow people to have little walled garden goats. Mm. Like this was the goat for Temple Sinai. Mm. So when you saw the tweets coming out, or we, we were also cataloging them on a website, you knew, oh, these are from my community. Yeah. You know, this thing about this sin or this lust or this mm. work, like whatever, this is this is happening in this room. Yeah. It was yeah. really intense. Yeah. Serious powerful. project. Like it looked very silly uh-huh. on the face of it, but it was pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. A good example of that that sort of tonal balance you were talking about before. Yeah, like like engaging enough that people want to do it, mm-hmm. but but also serious. Another great example that I love to point to is There's an organization called Reboot, and they, I think it's like 10 years old now, have a project called 10Q, where there are 10 questions, like really introspective questions about ways you would like to improve yourself over the next year, and how might you be a better person in this way and that way, and you answer all these essays, and then you click a button, and they're locked into a vault, Mm. and you get them emailed back to you on the following Rosh Hashanah, Mm. the following New Year. It's a really cool project. Yeah, they've got a, they've got a, a reboot Sabbath thing that I use sometimes. Uh-huh. Uh, you can I, I love that you can order this adorable little sleeping bag for your smartphone. Yeah, and let your smartphone sleep for a day. Yeah, there's a lot of really cool innovation going on. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've talked uh, about the sort of fun of going to a tech conference and seeing something that's hot right now in online games or whatever, and thinking about how that might map on to. A religious practice in an interesting way. Oh, so, so we're going to talk about Fruit Ninja now. Yeah. So Fruit Ninja was this this game that people may remember where um, fruit would go by and you had to swipe it and cut it in half or whatever. This is a smartphone game. Uh, and bombs would go by and you couldn't swipe the bombs. You saw the popularity of that and you thought of a different application. Yeah. Well, actually, it's even more interesting because it went in reverse. Hmm. I was reading the first couple chapters of Leviticus 
and with a highlighter kind of just picking out the echoes and the rhymes in the book like mm. if you did this then bring this and if you don't have this then bring that and all these if then statements and mm. it read like a rule book like mm. it was just such a obvious rule set once you start mm. getting into it and so that to me suggested a game mm. and what would be a good game mechanic to match this onto uh-huh. and it immediately became fruit ninja because mm. of course you are literally slashing animals yeah. <laughs> if you're the high priest and you're taking these sacrifices at the temple so we took it very literally and people could sacrifice you know cows or goats but not blemished ones and if you sacrifice a blemished animal you know you were booted out of the game or you could sacrifice a bird but you had to get two of them <laughs> because that's what it says in Leviticus you could bring two birds and you could sacrifice if you were a vegetarian <laughs> or poor person you could bring the ingredients to make like sort of a, a holy cracker right mm-hmm. the meal and the oil um, so you have to get those things all together in a swipe so it was yeah fruit ninja for animals and actually if you made it to the very advanced round you got to actually enter the holy of holies and splatter blood on the altar Mm -hmm. um, which is described towards the end of those chapters and people worked really hard at playing the game so that they could do that i never made it that far yes it's a hard game i'm curious i've i've seen you play it in front of a group of people and i don't remember there being major repercussions i once played it in front of a smaller group of people (laughs) and maybe the intimacy of the smaller group um was was a part of what sort of license this but person really got in my face about the blood (laughs) Um, i don't know how they can handle leviticus if they can't handle the blood that was kind of what i wanted to say i I thought it was faithful to the notion of like this is this is um an inherently violent text yeah Um, it is yeah yeah Yeah. and we don't do those things anymore Mm -hmm. right um there are a small subset of people who would like to bring back (laughs) animal sacrifice but i'm not in that group all right um (laughs) So, you know, I think it's interesting to say, look, this is what's in the text. Mm -hmm. And if we take the text seriously, we have to take all of the text seriously and find ways to wrestle with it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I don't take the Bible literally. Mm -hmm. And I don't teach my students to take it literally either. But you can look at this and say, what is this? Why is this meaningful to me now? And how can I, you know, make meaning out of it? And that's what the game challenges us to do. Mm -hmm. Been an, it's been an interesting week, and you and I have been talking a lot about the connection between uh, texts, broadly conceived, and the various media that we're trying to help people think about how to communicate those texts or those practices or you know whatever whatever the sort of religious stuff that is finding a new sort of life via new media. And um, you've talked a lot about being, in many cases, frustrated with the um, with the affordances of, of YouTube and what what the sort of YouTube ecosystem, how, how that shapes some of your writing and some of your work in, in, in ways that you find challenging. I'm wondering if you could um, talk about that some. Yeah, the easiest example, of course, is to talk about time on YouTube. Time operates differently on YouTube than it does in a magazine. For one thing, we never make anything longer than three minutes anymore. We used to make things that were four and five minutes, and now we don't. Um, another thing, and this is coming directly from YouTube, if you're going to capture somebody into watching your video, it has to be done in the first three seconds. The three seconds is the time at which people are most likely to bounce off of your video because they've decided that you're boring or you're not getting to the subject they thought you were getting to. Sometimes it's for a good reason. Oh, this person is Jewish. I wanted to hear someone Catholic. Yeah, yeah. Right? But you have three seconds to capture someone. And that's, 
not the way people have traditionally written, right? Very often you get hundreds of words to, you know, bring someone in through a beautiful metaphor or to tell a story from your life before you get to the point. You can't do that on YouTube. And I don't know that that's for the better mm. of humanity. <laughs> I, um, it has caused me to rewrite everything. M my work is getting more and more blunt. It's getting more and more direct. More and more of my colleagues in this work are speaking directly to the camera. We are increasingly cutting back the amount of animation we do and putting our faces on the camera more because there's a clear preference for that on YouTube that we can see in the metrics. It's it's wagging us, you mm -hmm. know? The medium is wagging us, and we're all differently comfortable with it mm -hmm. and evolving with it all the time. And from time to time, YouTube and Facebook, you know, they change the way they wait video in the news feed. They change what a subscription looks like and you have to scramble to keep up. Mm -hmm. And what you thought was your audience is mm -hmm. you're only reaching 10% of them. And mm -hmm. it, it, it's really wagging us a lot. And a lot of times I miss the old days where you just got someone on your mailing list, you sent them a video and they watched it. Mm -hmm. Now there's this whole game around mm -hmm. it and this huge ecosystem of people competing for attention. Mm -hmm. Another thing that ties into that uh, around the length thing is let's say you have a large body of content to teach. like we're doing a lot of work around death and mourning. There are hours of content to be delivered there. We have to chunk it up mm -hmm. into little three minute sections. And it's complicated because YouTube used to let you have interactive annotations in the video where you could say, if you wanna know more about you know, the funeral, click here. Mm -hmm. And you could send people off anytime you wanted. Now you can't do that anymore. Now you can send people off at the end. So it's just causing this constant rewriting of how things work. Mm. It's also, um, things look different on Facebook than they do on YouTube. So there's some content that you have to sit back and go, does this want to live on Facebook or does it want to live on YouTube? Mm. Is it for the moment, and I don't care if anyone sees it three weeks from now, or is this evergreen content that mm -hmm. is better served on YouTube? Mm -hmm. And we're having to think so much more like marketers and less mm -hmm. like educators than, than we would like to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In, a, in a sort of longish term ideal world, would you try to build something that could let you work differently I, or is that just I, I'll tell you I have a specific proposal I really am interested in the Jewish education philanthropy world supporting a centralized marketing agency for digital innovation there are so many of well okay there's not so many of us there's, it's not that big of a community but there are a few dozen projects podcasts videos apps whatever that have a shared discovery and distribution problem and I think there's there's just better scale if we could all work together. I think that if there was like a, a tiny little ad agency that worked on behalf of Jewish educational media, mm -hmm. it would be much more effective than mm -hmm. having us all turn into little, you yeah. know, YouTube marketing yeah, experts. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Interesting. If I get someone's attention in three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> you shock them. You bring up uh, something very timely and controversial. You put a really hot actor on screen. <laughs> we started bringing in actors. Mm. You know, it's not me and Jeremy on screen all the time. We found, you know, a really cute woman. We found a really cute guy. Mm. We have great music. We have unexpected, like just unexpected things happening. Recently, I started noticing the huge trend of YouTube slime videos. If you don't know what that is, just please right now go to YouTube or Instagram and search hashtag slime and you will see that it is an obsession 
on the internet. And so I said, okay, let's see what happens when we make a Jewish slime video. I was kind of rolling my eyes, but sure enough, you know, it went out of the gate much faster than any other type of content we've made. Mm -hmm. So that's another thing, you know, riding, trending topics and hashtags. Mm -hmm. Is this what we're reduced to, Kyle? (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I don't know. But it seems to me that, uh, I said this uh, last night when a group of us were sitting around, it seems to me that that you all do it with an integrity that is is rare. Um, Or I I don't know if rare, but tempting to do something very different. Mm, You know, like thinking of other things that you had a, you had an infinite runner game that Mm -hmm. is uh, Jonah running away from from God, uh, running away from Nineveh. It was the perfect mechanic, Uh, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, like, we've talked about that a little bit, about how some of what you need is a good matchup between the, the message and the, and the medium. But, but what else is going through your head when you're, you're asking, is, is this just us trying to ride a wave, or can this wave be genuinely useful for what we want to teach? I mean, that, that game, I think, was genuinely useful for somebody who wants to teach the Book of Jonah. Yeah, it, it's so easy in a classroom full of iPads, right, to give a group of fifth graders the game, Jonah Run, and let them play it for five, ten minutes. If they don't figure out how to get to the end screen, how to get through the end screen, fine, tell them how to do it because it's a really great finale at the end. And then say, okay, now we're going to read the book of Jonah. And I think having played the game is going to open your eyes to the text in a way that you might not have been ready to receive before. Mm -hmm. I've played Leviticus also with like 10, 11 year olds and then handed out the text to them with highlighters and said, highlight everything you learned from the game, Mm -hmm. the rules of the game. And boom, they've got the text. It's a real new way to learn. Mm -hmm. Um, So while it is gimmicky and opportunistic to like ride the wave of a trend like that, it's effective in the moment. Will it be effective 20 years from now? I don't know. You know, that mm-hmm. infinite runner games will be so passe that, you know, yeah. it wouldn't be effective. But Well, let me ask you the other way. Was there a trend that you thought about jumping in on and then said, you know what, this we, we can't make this work, or we can't make huh. this work with, with integrity? Hmm. <laughs> the slide video really pushes <laughs> in, dude. There is not much going on in there. <laughs> um... I, I want to add, though, that um, you don't actually have to make the game for it to work. Um, I've done workshops with kids where they learn something about game design, which you can deliver that content in 45 minutes, and then you give them a text. Like, for instance, we've worked with the plagues in Exodus, and you assign this group of kids. Like, you get the first plague, you get the second, you get the third, and you tell them that they're going to map it onto a game mechanic, and they're going to kind of storyboard out what some of the screens and the rules would be. And the kids, they get it right away, and it causes them, with enthusiasm, to pick up a copy of the Bible and root for, wait, what else can I do here? Oh, you know, the the ash only fell outside the camp, so we have to draw this, like, force field, or, you know, um, or, oh, it was, like, a specific kind of beast, and we have to make sure we draw those right. And it causes them really with enthusiasm to pick up the text. So you don't even have to make the game, and you can run exercises like this in the classroom just using the iPad as a, as a um, like, a shiny thing that gets the kids excited, and it's super effective. Cool. Anything else you think you want to talk about? I mean, just that it's really fun being here and showing other often older Mm. clergy and educators that they can do this stuff. Mm. You know, it was such a treat to just sit with seven uh, pastors and rabbis and help them realize that they could be vloggers Mm -hmm. and, and that some of the people in that room had a real vision. Like, I really want to preach using YouTube. 
and not just to my congregation. You know, that I have a message that is bigger than my, you know, 200 family congregation. That's really exciting to see them start that. Yeah, yeah. We heard last night from uh, a couple of trainers from the Op-Ed Project, this great project that uh, is trying to get underrepresented voices uh, writing op-eds and doing other thought leadership stuff. So they started specifically working with women, done a lot of work with people of color, and it was really inspiring to me to hear that um, that they considered faith leaders a, an important voice for our public conversations. And they, they really um, challenged us really, really sort of passionately, like, the public needs to hear from you. Because... They are hearing from some clergy now, but it's overrepresented in some communities and under in others. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think in particular, I mean, the labels aren't always helpful, but I, I think they're not hearing as much from from progressive denominations and progressive clergy. And, and so I found that I found that really, um, really compelling. And it, it sort of matches a lot of the experiences that I've had as a religious leader in this secular media program. Really interesting the number of times that people many if not most of whom are not particularly observant um, in, 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 any, in any religion, let alone in the Episcopal Church or the Christian faith or what have you, saying, yeah, I'd like to be hearing more from people like you. Um, I, I have found that um, unexpected and um, obviously empowering, and, and I think I would not be alone um, with some of the folks here to say also kind of intimidating and kind of scary because I think many religious leaders, and I'll put myself in this boat, have sort of resigned ourselves to a narrative that, that says that religious life is going to be less and less important in uh, American culture. And, and in some ways, I would welcome that. <laughs> and in other ways, I um, you know, uh, would be professionally and, and personally devastated by that. Right, but let, um, let's not... Um... Let's not turn ourselves down. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah. The, the way to really be like looked in the eye and told, you are an expert the world needs to hear from. I found that very powerful. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks, Sarah. Thanks, uh, Kyle. I'm always excited to catch up with you and uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next for Bitmo. Thank you. Interview aside, I'm thinking that we should make a video this week. Yeah, let's do it. Like while we're here. Like let's teach a text together in two ways. Cool. Like let's just do it. Yeah, yeah. Let's just see what it. happens. Uh-huh.